Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Bonnie Quinn. This week... I think emerging markets pray. Dan Moss on how emerging markets, ex-Britain, no joke, are coping with FX turmoil. We'll also speak with Justin Fox on just who needs to start participating in the US labor force to help the Fed out. First, though, to the crisis starting in Britain. Sterling and gilts plummeted after new Chancellor Kwasi Kwartung unveiled a mini-budget the markets rejected. The Bank of England balked too, but hasn't pledged any emergency activity. I asked Bloomberg Economics Chief Economist Tom Orlick to join. So, Tom, you can call it alarm, shock, markets taking fright. These are all headlines I've seen this week to describe the reaction to the new Chancellor of the Exchequer in Britain announcing £45 billion of tax cuts along with a wave of borrowing. What happens next? It seems like markets had no idea how to handle this. So I think the challenge here is that the new Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK, Kwasi Kwarteng, has announced an unsustainable fiscal package. He's announced very substantial tax cuts, but no offset from a drop in public spending. Now, the markets see that the UK is now on an unsustainable trajectory, and that's why we're seeing this extremely unusual combination of a sharp rise in borrowing costs for the UK government, even as the pound sells off. Um, What happens next? Well, there's a kind of potential emergency solution. The Bank of England could step in with an outsized hike in interest rates that would restore a bit of stability to the pound, but it would come at a serious cost. The UK economy, very sensitive to interest rates, a big hike, for example, would hammer the housing market. To get a fundamental solution, we really need to look at the origin of the problem until the British Treasury comes out with a credible plan for ensuring debt sustainability. It's tough to see this problem going away. Now, Kwartung did talk about coming out with something in November that you know he promises will calm the market, some kind of a strategy to put debt on a downward path. But what rabbit could he possibly pull out of the Treasury's hat? So I don't think there is an easy solution from here, Bonnie. Yes, we could have hikes from the Bank of England, which would stabilize the currency, but add additional burdens for an already very fragile economy. On the fiscal side, the most straightforward solution to this is for Kwartung to either reverse course on some of the tax cuts or make an unpopular commitment to cut public spending. Now, either or some combination of both of those could reassure the markets that The fiscal trajectory for the UK is now more sustainable, but neither of them would be politically popular. Why would it not be sustainable? How are traders so convinced that Britain can't enact some kind of Reagan-esque type fiscal policy over the next couple of years? I think Cowan is a little bit picking and choosing with the indicators which he points to to support his argument there. I think if we take a look at the move in UK borrowing costs, if we look at the move in the pound, clearly the markets are now questioning if the UK is on a sustainable trajectory. Now, how can you sort of square the circle? How can you convince the markets that the finances are actually 
going to be sustainable? Well, there's really sort of three variables which Kwatang has to play with, and he'll probably have to play with all of them. There's tax. They just committed to massive tax cuts. Maybe they're going to have to roll back some of that commitment. There's spending. The fundamental issue here is that the commitment to tax cuts wasn't matched by a commitment to spending cuts. Spending cuts at this point, when so much of the UK is suffering and struggling to make and ends meet in the subsidies. face of massive energy costs, exactly, not really politically palatable. And the last piece of it is the idea that growth is going to solve all these problems. Mm-hmm. That old idea, going back to Ronald Reagan and his economist Laffer, um, that if you cut taxes, you drive growth higher and you end up with more money coming into the government's coffers, not because you're taxing more, just because the economy is growing more quickly. So I think Kwatung and the Treasury will also be trying to make the case that, yeah, if you look at the tax numbers and the spending numbers, it doesn't quite add up. But don't worry, we're going to deliver on growth. Well, and remind me, doesn't Britain and the new administration also have to negotiate some trade deals? That's not not done, uh, right? So it's not like the pie can grow until that's done. So um, the US and China declared trade war on each other under the Trump administration. The UK went one better and declared trade war on itself (laughs) um, by exiting the European Union, um, the biggest sort of single trading block in the world. Now, the Brexiteers said, don't worry, we're exiting the European Union, but that's going to give us freedom to negotiate trade deals with all the different other countries around the world. And if we add all of that up, it's going to more than offset the cost of exiting the European Union. Well, I'm a Brit. I wish them luck on delivering on that agenda. So far, it seems a bit harder than they anticipated. So this all is turning very sour and you have the Bank of England desperately trying to hold on to its credibility because it can't lose credibility along with the Treasury and the whole country. Commentators from Larry Summers to strategists like Mansur Mouyoudin talking about literally the words emerging market now when they talk about Britain, which would have seemed far-fetched a week or two ago. How far-fetched is it now or what kind of performative activity are we going to need from somebody in authority in order to restore some kind of confidence in Britain? So I think the fundamental problem here is that the new Chancellor of the Exchequer stood up and almost in his first statement convinced the market that he didn't care about fiscal sustainability. Mm. And of course, that has triggered enormous costs with the rise in borrowing costs for the UK government and the plunge in the pound. Fundamentally, what is required to right the ship is for the same chancellor to stand up and convince the market that actually, yes, he does care deeply about growth. He does want to deliver on an ambitious growth agenda, but he also understands and will credibly commit to delivering on fiscal sustainability as well. It doesn't look very good for the Trust administration, does it, Tom? I don't think this is going to go down in history as the most auspicious start for any new administration ever, Bonnie. Let's put it like that. Bloomberg Economics Chief Economist Tom Orlick. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. As the Fed prepares for the unemployment rate to go up as part of its campaign to tame inflation, part of the Fed's hope is that labor force participation rises. In other words, that people previously not even looking will become part of the labor force again. That would push the unemployment rate higher for sure, but it wouldn't push people currently in jobs out of jobs. So less painful pain, perhaps. To put it in context, labour force participation was at or above 63 before the pandemic. It's slow to 60 as the pandemic hit. It's now back up to 62.4. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Justin Fox has been looking at various cohorts and finding some data that might surprise. So, Justin, there's a belief out there that through the pandemic, people 55 and over left the workforce in droves and that that was exacerbating a trend already 15 years in the making. But it turns out that that premise is actually false. Tell us more. It's partly just that I'm 58 years old. And when I look at you know these reports about, oh, 55 and older labor force participation fell a lot during the pandemic and is still actually kind of falling while most other groups have gone back. And then I look at people my own age that I know, but also just look at the statistics for the 55 to 59 age group, it's actually up over the course of the pandemic. And so that just caused me to start looking a little more into it. And basically, people in their late 50s are actually slightly higher labor force participation than before the pandemic. Those in their early 60s, it's a little lower. But for the people above 65, there's been a real drop. That drop has been smaller in percentage terms than the 1.7 percentage point drop in overall 55 and older labor force participation, which just seems weird. So people in their early 70s have seen a smaller labor force participation drop than the overall 55 and older. And what it is is this thing that the economists call composition effects. It's just that within the 55 and older age group, the age distribution is changing. Mm. What it is is there's the baby boomers, and, well, I'm one of them too, but just barely. (laughs) And the baby boomers are simply a bunch of years where birth rates were higher than before or after. And so the oldest of the baby boomers are turning 58 this year. So when you look at the overall 55 and older age group, it's starting to be filled at the young end by members of Generation X, and there aren't as many of them. Now, in general, after about age 40, the older you get, the less likely you are to be in the labor force. Mm. So as that happens, if you have a big group of people now aging into their 60s and 70s and this smaller group of people aging into their late 50s, that just sort of automatically is going to cause participation rates to decline, even if participation rates of every age group within there is not declining at all. 
so you have to be very careful when you look at the data before you pull assumptions out of it and say, oh, everyone over 55 just decided that life should be different after COVID. It's not like that at all. Early on, early retirement was this phrase for it. And when you looked at it, retirement wasn't up for people under 65. It was up for people over 65. And maybe they were retiring earlier than they had planned to because there definitely was a leap for people in their late 60s and early 70s. Aren't that many of them working, but the numbers have been going up for a long time. So yeah, it's just, there's definitely been a drop, but it's concentrated among people over 65 years old. You know, A, it's kind of understandable. COVID is really dangerous if you're over 65. And so not exactly wanting to go into the office or, I mean, right before the pandemic, McDonald's was starting to recruit senior citizens to come work yes. there. And it's like, maybe not a great idea. Um, a, a lot of customer facing yeah, exactly. activity. So it's not that there hasn't been any decline. And, and I actually, after writing this piece, I did an age-adjusted version and basically half of the decline in 55 and older labor force participation is an actual decline, and half is this statistical composition effect. You did find that there are two groups for whom participation has declined substantially, and they may not be the ones that we would assume. Right. There are two groups under age 60 who have seen labor force participation decline from before the pandemic, and it's people in their early 20s and in their late 30s. So the early 20s, you could maybe see. So the pandemic is not exactly a time to go looking. It's very difficult to interview. You don't even know where you really want it. You don't know what businesses are going to be around after the pandemic. But right. And a lot it? of people also delayed, took a gap year. So they're still in college now when they wouldn't have been otherwise at age 23 or whatever. One other factor that I didn't write about, but that economist Adam Ozimak pointed out to me on Twitter is that there's a bunch of 22-year-olds who got a bunch of money from various pandemic relief programs. And if they were still living at home, they probably still have all that money. Mm. So there's just less of an absolute need to get out on the job market. But the late 30s is a little more surprising. Yeah, I mean, and it does seem like it would have something to do with childcare because people in their late 30s are pretty much the most likely group now in the U.S. to have small children. But what's interesting is, and this is true overall, women are now above their pre-pandemic levels, both in that late 30s age group and for the entire prime working age. So while participation for women is up, male labor force participation overall continues to decline. Now, we've known for some time that participation for prime age men, so 25 to 54, has been seeing an accelerating decline. Recap for us why, Justin? Yeah, for men, I mean, some of it is stuff like people just staying in school longer, more people going to college And some percentage of it is men taking on more responsibilities at home. But clearly most of it is a larger group of men than women who are just completely disconnected from work. And we're seeing that play out in polls and in elections. and Yeah, I mean, and that's been a phenomenon. You know, there was a lot of talk about it over the past decade. And I imagine we will start talking about it again because it'll continue to be, you know, and one clear reason for it is because men are much more likely to have criminal records be ex-convicts. And it's just been really hard for people to come out of prison and get into the workforce. So that's clearly part of it. But there are also just other issues with the kind of jobs that have been created and what men feel comfortable doing and are willing to do. And in general, men are struggling in school in a way that women aren't. 
One encouraging thing is it's clear, at least right now, the job market has been very good for non-college graduates. So maybe that will help. Justin, I guess the bottom line is we should rethink our assumptions about older workers. They're there and they're working. Yeah. And And I guess they have to. Right. And I, I guess what it is, is I just don't think there's a huge number of older workers who can be brought back into the workforce. There definitely are some, and you're, and you're seeing the numbers keep inching up, but definitely uh, people 65 and older, you know, they keep getting older every year, and, and, and it's reasonable that more of them would want to be out of the workforce. The oldest baby boomers are turning 75 now, so, the, wow. you know, they should probably, you know, obviously some people can keep working forever, but a lot of people don't want to and have saved up enough money that they don't have to. So I guess what it is, is if we're looking for sort of quick things that can increase labor force participation, we should probably spend more time thinking about what's going on with people in their early 20s and late 30s and trying to fix whatever hurdles there are. Bloomberg Opinion's Justin Fox. We continue now with our review of currency turmoil this week. I spoke with Bloomberg Opinion's Dan Moss. So, Dan, if you look at WCRS on the Bloomberg year to date, it's really quite a sight to see. All the majors, with maybe the exception of the Brazilian real and the peso, are down versus the dollar, and most of those by double digits. Turmoil unleashed in currency markets seems to be getting worse by the week. Are we in full-blown FX crisis mode globally? No, I wouldn't say it is an FX crisis globally. What we are seeing, though, significant reverberations of U.S. dollar strength, magnified in specific instances by local idiosyncrasies. You know, there's been a lot of attention, Vonnie, on the agonistic of the British pound in the past few days, justifiably so. You can't really talk about that without mentioning Japan's adventures in the currency market Thursday evening Mm. local time. Japan intervened to buy yen. They've had plenty of interventions selling it. They bought it this time. That's the first time since 1998, an epochal year for currencies. China, almost every day now, China is rolling out some sort of tweak to its rules and regulations to cushion the decline in the yuan. And it's not stopping the depreciation. We're at 7.2 within, obviously, one percentage point per dollar right now. And it's just continuing, Dan, even with the intervention. There are sound reasons for that. China's economy is not in a great state. We're used to, in past decades, during times of global economic softness, China kind of riding to the rescue. That's not happening anymore. The PBOC is never far from what's going on in Chinese markets. They have a daily fixing. They limit fluctuations. They're not trying to stand against market forces. They are trying to mitigate some of the more extreme manifestations of that. You look at overnight volatility, so many pairs are seeing such activity. Reverberation from the strong dollar are increasingly making themselves felt in developed economies. What's unnerving about the situation in the UK right now is British authorities find themselves managing a reputational crisis. You know, it's one thing you have inflation, you manage that. You have slow growth, you can stimulate a bit. But we're now busy, or the UK government is now busy distancing itself from this EM tag. No less a person than a former US Treasury Secretary is saying it. It's really quite incredible. Mansur Mowi Uden, Larry Summers, as you mentioned, so many people talking about Britain as 
an emerging market. But let's move to the emerging markets because obviously it's one thing for developed markets, as you say, with developed capital markets. But how do EM and frontier economies survive? We've seen places like Pakistan in turmoil. We've seen default. What happens in Hungary, where the forint is down nearly 25%? Lira in Turkey down nearly 30%. Argentina? I think emerging markets pray. Look, we've had this narrative off and on for the better part of two decades, which is all about emerging markets decoupling from the dollar, finding their own strength. But the episodes that we've seen of late sort of put a lie to that. There's not a lot an emerging market, with the exception of China, can really do about this other than don't kick own goals. Mm. Dollar strength is such that any country that's perceived to be winging it or engaging in indulgences is going to get picked off. Mm. Now, right or wrong, that is the way the UK fiscal package was perceived a day after the Japanese intervention. Look, it's king dollar. And the question is, what does king dollar do with the kingdom? Dan, how much can export-oriented economies benefit from currency weakness in order to shore up domestic activity, let's say, even as their external debt loads get heavier? I mean, there is a point beyond which even export-oriented economies can't take this anymore, right? Well, in theory, it's great for an export-dependent economy. However, there's got to be the demand for the stuff. Now, we saw an update to OECD global growth forecast. That was a very significant cut. Where I'm sitting in Southeast Asia, China has been both a big source of export and import demand. And we're just not seeing that because China's economy is in retreat. So what do you do? It's a really tough one. Are we going to see more defaults and more pressure on organizations such as the International Monetary Fund? So let's go back 25 years in Southeast Asia, where I'm now sitting. The IMF was the first port of call. But don't underestimate the ill will fostered by the very, very harsh conditionality Mm. that the IMF imposed. And in many instances, the IMF was, if not caused, then certainly midwife to significant political dislocations. Now, you can say, hey, it brought true democracy to South Korea. The first opposition candidate was elected. It brought a complete reorganisation of governance in Indonesia. Malaysia rolled the dice on capital controls and kind of got away with it in the short term, but at the price of significant reputational risk and a long-term split within the ruling party. So the IMF has to be there, but the countries have to be willing to go to it. And certainly emerging markets in this region know that it ain't a free lunch. Bloomberg Opinion's Dan Moss. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. 
Com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. To return to the story of the week now, and that is turmoil in FX markets across the globe, Bloomberg Opinions' Andrea Papuk joins. So, Andrea, Bloomberg Opinions' Dan Moss told us that emerging markets can do really very little in the eye of dollar strength. His advice actually was to pray, and he was only a little bit being tongue-in-cheek. Where are the dangers most obvious right now? Yeah, look, I don't think it's only emerging markets that can do very little. If you look around, there is very little that anyone, including China and Japan, can do. In the last week, we saw Japan come in and intervene to prop up the yen. And while that did have an immediate reaction, I guess, if you look at the level of the yen right now, it is not much below where the uh, Ministry of Finance and the Bank of Japan came in last week. And also we have got the Chinese yuan falling to a record low And again, it seems that China is perhaps less determined to go in there and stem that slide. And the reason is, if we step back, this is the greenback pretty much steamrolling every single currency around the world. And look, it is a very classic example of interest rate differentials playing out. We know that the Fed is determined to keep going with interest rate increases to bring down this runaway inflation. And as long as that keeps going on, you will continue to see the dollar strengthen. And I think, in, you know, in very simple terms, what we are seeing is higher U.S. rates, capital outflows out of emerging markets, especially China. And yes, it's not just the emerging markets. It is everywhere. Exactly. And you mentioned China's yuan. The onshore has weakened to above 722 versus the U.S. dollar now. Obviously, it's different in the basket of currencies. But Mm. China, even if it's been offloading U.S. government debt for some time, it still holds mountains of it. How does China navigate these waters? Yeah, and look, it looks at the moment it is easing its grip. It is, for want of a better word, becoming more comfortable. I don't think it's that, but I think it realizes that it cannot stand in the way of these higher U.S. rates. And look, keep in mind, you know, China has its own issues with the fact that it's clinging to this COVID zero policy. It has the property market woes. So you are not likely going to see the accommodative monetary conditions in China end anytime soon. You are unlikely to see China lifting rates anytime soon. I think like probably every other central bank, it just needs to stay tight. At the moment, it seems that everyone is just waiting to see what is going to happen because there is very little they can do to stand in the way of the U.S. dollar strength. But also, we're also 
staring down the barrel of a potential global recession. Mm. Uh, you know, so where do people want to park their money? They want to park their money, I guess, in the safest asset. And that remains the US dollar. Well, and then when you see the International Monetary Fund literally asking the British Treasury to reevaluate its unfunded tax cuts just announced, I mean, that's quite the event on the currency stage as well. Are you seeing any little pockets of opportunism? I suppose I'm asking, is there any chance that we're going to see a currency collapse or a peg collapse anytime soon? The International Monetary Fund, that was really interesting. Look, I think it just adds to the uncertainty out there. And I think one other potential pocket of uncertainty that hasn't had much attention this week is the euro and the Italian election. Mm. And that is potentially another geopolitical uncertainty that could rattle the euro. There are some analysts expecting the euro to fall to 0.95. So we haven't yet seen the effect of this. I don't want to call it a crisis, call it a currency meltdown. We haven't seen everything play out. So there are still potential headwinds out there for the likes of the euro. Well, it's a testament to exactly how much has been going on and how crazy everything seems. Now, when we talk about a currency crisis in theory, I guess it's a nominal depreciation of at least 25%. Obviously, in practice, it can be different percentages and so on. But sterling did meet that definition for a moment. The yen is down more than 20%. The Swedish krona and Norwegian krona too. And New Zealand and South Korea aren't far off. This is obviously just versus the US dollar. It feels like we're storing up all kinds of problems for the next six months to a year, Andrea. Is that stoking too much panic to say that? Oh, look, I think you're right. I mean, I'm looking now at the depreciation we have seen this year. And yes, the 10 biggest currencies against the US dollar are inching their way, if you like, towards that 20%. It's a moving feast, isn't it? It it is so hard to say when this is going to end. It definitely feels like a crisis. No one has kind of attached that label to it yet. But I think it's fair to say that that is potentially what we are looking at for the next six months. And I think one of the things that's worth keeping in mind is that it seems that every central bank, from the Bank of Japan to the People's Bank of China, they're on their own in trying to defend their currencies. There's no concerted effort for central banks to come together to do anything. It's sort of every man for himself in central bank land. And what we have seen so far is that the effect of coming in to prop up your currency is very short term. Mm. Uh, Well, And beyond that, exchange reserves will be declining in certain countries, not just because they're being used for those purposes, but also because if you're not an exporting country and if you don't have commodities and if you're mainly an importing country, if you need food supplies and so on, you're in deep trouble. We've seen socioeconomic unrest in various places, not just for this reason, for many reasons, but everything is interconnected at this point. Should we be concerned about particular countries? Yeah, look, you're right. I mean, how far do you want to deplete your reserves, given that what you're trying to achieve seems to have almost no effect at a time when you have got countries dealing with elevated cost of living? Inflation is a problem. So, yeah, 
and I think at this moment, these are kind of theoretical things that could happen. But definitely, the longer this goes on, the longer that will become a problem. And you're right. Will government step in? Will we need to see more fiscal support from emerging countries. And the moment you see that, are you going to see budget deficits blow out? And these are questions that will probably become a lot clearer the longer this goes on. But these are definitely risks. Right. And you mentioned energy. I mean, oil has retreated to an extent, but if there were to be another shock in oil or another market, would central banks even have the ability to withstand those shocks? I mean, certain central banks are very weakened at this point. That's right. And look, oil has come down. And I guess that is one positive thing, especially if you're a country that is a major oil importer in the sense that it takes some of that pressure of inflation. And, you know, having these weak currencies also helps with controlling inflation to a certain extent. So that is, I guess, one of the positive. But I think all of that at the moment seems to be drowned out by the fear of capital outflows out of emerging markets, especially out of China. We know that China is incredibly concerned. As the one weakens, you are likely going to see these capital outflows. So it's a very fine line that these especially emerging market countries are trading right now, but these massive outflows of capital. And how do they navigate that? You know, I think they, they are in a very precarious situation, especially as we're talking about a currency crisis. So there's some major hurdles ahead to some of these governments that will potentially have to come in and help fiscally. It's almost ironic that the one government that we have seen do that in recent weeks is the UK government and look what that spurred. (laughs) That's right. And I think for the UK government, the timing was very unfortunate, simply because inflation is just so high. So it's almost like adding fuel to the fire with these tax cuts that they announced. And, you know, what you saw in financial markets, it really was a loss of faith in the new UK government. You can understand why they were doing it, but it seemed reckless given the fact that you have got the Bank of England trying to bring down inflation, well, like every other central bank around the world. So, Andrea, what countries are you watching most closely? Where could we see the next move? Well, look, it's interesting. One one country that it's worth keeping an eye on is Australia. The economy here remains quite strong. We've got record employment. Unemployment rate is at a record low. You've got a central bank that has been lifting interest rates and is determined to do so. And yet the Aussie dollar now looks like it could test the psychological level of 60 cents after it's broken Mm. through these technical levels. So that's one currency that, you know, was quite resilient. But again, it is a victim of what's going on globally. And it seems that even the Aussie dollar can't expect to remain elevated. It has fallen about 20% this year. And it's trading around 64 now. Uh, But yeah, I mean, the fact that 60 cents is in Mm. sight, that's one currency that's worth keeping an eye on. It too is falling into the dollar's whirlpool. Bloomberg Opinions, Andrea Papuk there. That does it for this week's opinion. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or send your thoughts to vquinn at bloomberg.net. Don't forget we're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify or your preferred platform. We're produced by Sarah Lindsay. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.